From Bristol, UK, I'm Pommy Harmer. And I'm Melissa Shamam, and this is The Quarantini. We've been bringing you this podcast every week since April to keep your spirits up. Every episode will bring you a mix of ingenious responses to the virus, creative ideas for the future, an in-depth interview, and maybe a dash of the unexpected. And first, thank you very much to Seb Gutierrez, as usual, for this beautiful music from the Old Bones Collective called Hot Flow. Hello and welcome back. In this episode, as the first ever grief festival comes to a close here in Bristol, we hear from the author and illustrator of a brand new picture book on starting conversations about death. And we have our usual roundup. And for the dash of something exciting, we have music from Somebodies. Right. Welcome back, Pomi. Hello, Melissa. Obviously, this week is a bit special. We started this, this podcast in lockdown in April, and now we are back in another lockdown. We are. It's time limited, so it's for the next month. Four weeks. Um, I was expecting the UK to have a lockdown. It's a bit different from Germany and France, but no, actually, they're also closing most of the restaurants, the bars, and, you know, pubs. I still don't know about the watershed, which is my favorite place. And they're so great at social distancing that I kind of hope they won't have to close. But what do you think? I think they will close, don't you? I think anywhere like that will close, anywhere serving food. Anything in hospitality will go for the next month. We could still see the films, you know. There's a great social distancing in place there. Anyway, I'm also a bit skeptical. I don't know about you, but I think four weeks is a bit of a weird idea because obviously as you know the numbers are going really high and so this sort of like this this effect makes the whole crisis a bit worse than the first lockdown so I know that Christmas is looming and people really want to travel then and go and celebrate but do you really think that four weeks will be enough to let people travel safely again I'm not sure I'm not convinced I'm not sure either, but I think it will slow the process down. It will relieve the stress on the NHS and probably we'll have to do it all again in January. Do you think? I do think we'll have to do it again in January. So if it's a relief to go out and back into the lockdown, why not? I think it depends on your mentality. For me, I think I would have I would have wanted a lockdown to start to stay longer in the summer like to sacrifice the holiday because it's it's easier to do a lockdown when it's sunny and warm and then wait until it's solved, until we reopen again. But, you know, I'm not prime minister of any of these countries. No, you're not. <laughs> but the thing is, <laughs> Melissa, a lockdown doesn't solve anything. It doesn't get rid of the virus, does it? It's not like we're banishing well, it did the virus. Work in, it did work in South Korea. And it, it and works in, in South Korea New Zealand. because they have an amazing track and trace system and they have a traffic light system and they're literally not allowed out of the house if they're if they're coded red so and we i can't imagine us going for that can you no of course we not. don't we don't like being told what to do in this country. no definitely i actually sometimes <laughs> think that it's counterproductive that if the prime minister said you can do whatever you want people would just stay home saying it's responsible <laughs> i want to be safe but because you tell people oh. not to go out they're like where is my freedom i, yes. I should be able to make up my mind one more thing that I wanted to say is like what I find really positive about the UK is that most countries in Europe 
they have a way stricter confinement when you can actually only go out an hour a day and you need to fill in a form every time you go out to prove at what time you left your house and there's police everywhere controlled. Can you imagine that in the United Kingdom? It would turn people mad. So... It, it did is, they do that in France? Well, yes. My my best friend got fined. You know why? She's very sporty. She's very tall. So she kind of need to go out a lot. She was totally respecting the rules. Going out when it's quiet, just for a walk. The parks were all closed as well, which is really difficult. Then you can just walk the streets like a lunatic. And she was fined because she was alone and the policeman really wanted to, you know, to catch someone. And she um, had her authorization, but it was from the day before because she didn't want to use too much paper. Oh. And they fined her for that. That's How a, much did she get fined? 130 euros. Oh. So it's, it doesn't teach people to... to To behave well, I think we could we could have like the same paper and maybe every day complete the date and the time. So, so I think what you're saying is that you, we're lucky. You quite you quite like the way UK is doing it. Yeah, Melissa. compared to Germany or Italy or Spain, and and I I do feel that there are more places open. The parks are open, and we have greener cities anywhere in in not everywhere obviously, but here in the southwest. So if people are in despair, I can just tell them it's more difficult, way more difficult in the rest of Europe. Yeah. Oh, well, that's really good to hear. Mm. Well, not for Europeans. No, but, but I hope it helps someone somewhere. <laughs> okay, so onwards. This week, Bristol has hosted the first ever grief festival, which because of COVID, obviously, has happened entirely online and has been free. And it's featured more than 70 events. And for a one-off price of £20, anyone can access any of it and all of it for the next three years. So if you're interested in the subject of grief, and many people are because this year the number of deaths, as we know, resulting from COVID has been astronomical and is set to rise even more as we head into our next lockdown. If you're interested in finding out about grief, then you need to search for the Good Grief Festival. And so we thought we'd find out more about grief. And so here is an interview with Eva Hibbs. Now, Eva Hibbs has written a children's book, a beautiful children's book all about grief and how to talk to children about grief, particularly very young children. This, so this book is really uh, to start conversations about death and share beliefs about life. And she's joined in the interview by Sarah Harrison, who did the wonderful, beautiful illustrations. And I started by asking Eva to talk about how the book came about. So it was actually a narrative that I wrote about three years ago. It started just with an idea of this, this little girl who, who wants to know where a missing member of her family is. It was inspired by what was going on in my own family. Uh, I had my little younger cousins in mind because my dad died 12 years ago. And since then, his brother has had two children that will never meet him. And I wondered how they would come to know him and what they would imagine about him or what they would be told about him or what they would be told happened to him. And yeah, it, it started there, really, this kind of wondering about how, how he would exist in their lives. And are you, are you a writer? Is this what you do? Yes, I am. Yeah. I'm primarily a fiction writer for adult fiction. I've, I've also written a couple of plays. 
but this is my first picture book for children. And it's very, very lovely. So moving on to the, the whiz behind the pictures, Sarah. Sarah, tell us the process by which you illustrate a book. I'm assuming that the words come first and you you illustrate to the words, but maybe that's not how it works. Sure. So as an illustrator, I'm self-taught. So other illustrators might have a different process completely. But I'd known that Eva was a writer and was really excited by her work. So she sent me the text as a Word document and then gave me a lot of freedom, actually, just to brainstorm and play and sketch. And we started with a storyboard. So I sent her a response with a little scrappy pencil sketch to each page um, because we'd split the text down into 32 pages, which is the normal format for a picture book. And from there, I think we bounced from storyboards straight into colours because very early on we had this idea that came from light being very important in memories and environment and how light could be something discussing grief with pictures. And that's where this idea of these rainbow light came from. And there's a theme of like rainbow through each page, which is watercolour. So very early on with the storyboard, I started painting watercolour in just different areas where it would be nice to have this kind of idea of colour and rainbow, which represents memories in the story. And from there, it was just a lot of back and forth. And we got some feedback and the order of the narrative changed a bit. And so did the order of the pages. And there are quite a lot of illustrations which didn't make the book and quite a lot that changed quite a lot. So in answer to your question of Uh, which comes first and do the images follow the text I would say yes but I think a successful picture book isn't simply a visual visual um, representation of the words it has to add something because a picture book is where the images and text are of equal importance and there are some things that Eva didn't write that I very cheekily snuck into the pictures for example the cat isn't mentioned in the words and the idea behind this cat character was how to engage maybe much younger readers who the story might be above their head, but they just want to look at the pictures. And it's this where's Wooly idea of this thing that you can find on every page to maybe have a discussion about if the other topics are a bit too deep as a kind of, yeah, a light distraction from it or addition to it. And in Bristol, as you guys know, but not not everyone will know, there's a good grief festival happening and it's the first one, I think, and it's international, which is one of the benefits of COVID. And I looked at the programme and there's only one talk that really helps people think about how to talk to children about grief. And even that is is how primary school teachers can talk to children. And this is what your book is essentially about, isn't it? It's how we can have honest conversations about difficult things. Do you think that's right? Definitely. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk openly with children about how they feel and also vice versa with adults. Um, The more open adults are about their emotions, I think in turn, the more children will be able to recognise their own emotions. And and I don't know. I mean, we're always told in this country, in the UK, that we're very, we find grief very difficult. We find death very difficult to talk about. I was thinking about this quite a lot this morning, that prior to starting working on this project with Eva, I was working doing lots of different administration roles within the NHS. And 
One of the things that I did there was processing paperwork for the ambulance service. And that includes reports of, unfortunately, when someone has died. And I would just think when someone's filled in that form, that's a whole family's world that's fallen apart. Um, There was like unique voice in each person that's writing it, but it has to be written in a very clinical way. And then contrary to that, talking about things, if it's not in a work setting, if it's someone you love, your friends, your family... We talk a lot in colloquialisms, that person's gone to sleep, that person isn't here anymore. And there's a lot of advice from children's bereavement charities, for example, Winston's Wish and Cruise, that the best way to talk about it is to be very direct and say that person has died. Because otherwise you end up with situations where young children are looking for the person who is missing or asking when they'll wake up again. And that makes it more difficult for parents, carers to then explain it. I think everybody has a slightly different experience with grief and that can prohibit us from sharing. I think it can feel quite quite a personal thing to go through. And that can be really difficult with people that are also hurting and experiencing it in a different way. But there is just this giant taboo, I think, around death and people struggle to know what to say. We don't have a practiced ceremony around it. It's not as celebratory as it is in other cultures and with a largely atheist culture, there isn't sort of a a celebratory way for, for responding to death. In the Good Grief Festival, one of the talks is entitled, Is This the Age of Grief? So when I think about grief, I think about grieving a parent who's died or somebody in my family or a friend. But actually, this talk is all about, although they say grief is a natural part of human experience, it can manifest in many, many different ways. And not only do we grieve around people who've died, but we also grieve about injustices that occur around the world. We grieve for the planet. We grieve for COVID. We grieve for lockdown. We grieve for our past experiences. So what they're saying is grief is much more in the public eye. People are talking about it more. There are more open conversations about grief. And I wonder what you thought about that, because you've written a book really trying to encourage us to have more conversations. Yeah, I think what we're going through at the moment is a kind of collective grief. And like you say, it's not necessarily a grief over death. It's a grief for things lost and things that may never return. But yeah, what what I think is going on with all of this is that whilst we're having this collective mourning, so there's there's a global loss, people are dying. I think it's also triggering for a lot of people their personal loss. And with the time to reflect on that, I, I think that it's it's on the surface for a lot of people. Yes. Um, as you both say, talking about death, we think of the loss of life. And it's, there was a, a talk with the Good Grief Festival again, which is called the COVID Cataclysm. How do we grieve for normal? And like you both say, like it could be the loss of experiences and yeah, it's very, very broad. And because we don't talk about it very much, we do talk about a very narrow version of it. Well, I suppose in any change, in any transition, there's a grief of what's been and there's a excitement about what's to come. And that's the, I, I see that in terms of 
the pandemic, you know, people are grieving what was normal, but they're also creating a new normal and getting excited about possibilities of things to come. But I don't know if that's the same in terms of grieving the loss of a of a loved one. I think there's this there's this sense that there will always be new life and there's a lot of hope and excitement that can come from that. And I think that's why I made it a children's book because Lily has all of her life to live and she can learn from the experiences of the people that came before and then within the context of the narrative her baby brother is born who's going to have even more awareness than she did because of this openness about the circularity of life um, and the different ways that people live their life and the different ideas that people have about how life should be lived and what happens to people when they die and so I think that there is something really to to cherish in this idea of continuation and that we learn as we go and that with everything that dies there's space for something new to be born and time does that that's a beautifully hopeful way to end this interview thank you both so much for talking to us today and sharing a quarantini thank you thank you thanks there to eva hibbs and sarah harrison for talking about their book, Where is Uncle Al? If you'd like to buy a copy, you need to head to the website evahibs.com, that's E-V-A-H-I-B-B-S, and a donation for every purchase is going to Action for Children. So what did you think? Well, it's really nice because I do find that it is a conversation that for most people is really hard to have, and especially young people, and especially in the United Kingdom, um, I lost my dad when I was 28. Actually, it was just three days before my 29th birthday. And so it's an age where most people still have their parents. Not everybody. I mean, I have friends who lost their dad when they were teenagers, which might be even worse. But one of the difficult thing is that you felt like you you were unable to talk about it with anybody and you have to act like it has not happened. But one thing that I've learned when I've lived in other countries is like for, for a lot of other cultures... Death is really much more part of life. So whether it's the cycle of nature or the rituals around the, the, the departure of someone you love, um, it's not a taboo at all because, it's again, it's part of the cycle of life. So I find that it was easier to cope with, with this loss in Mexico or some part of Africa. And and I hope that if we're able to talk about this with children, they're, they're going to be a bit more prepared because, again, it's bound to happen. Yes, it's unavoidable, isn't it? And I, my, I lost my dad when I was 22 and I can remember going back home and saying to a friend what had happened and her first sentence was, oh, well, you won't want to talk about that. And I thought, I th at the time I thought, well, I'm not really thinking about anything else. So, yes, I would quite like to talk about it. But I didn't say that because I... I felt really strongly that actually she didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, and it happened. the same thing happened to me. I went back to work and my boss, who's like my mom's age, and my dad was a little bit older, where he said, oh, I, I don't deal well with death, so I don't <gasps> want to know. And I felt like it was so aggressive because, you know, you're older and you're supposed to be more mature and you don't have to say, hey, call me every minute, but, you know, you can always try to be understanding and, and also... Even my boyfriend at the time said, when I was sure my dad would not survive, he said, you know, if you cry or if you're upset, it's not going to help. So yes. be strong. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is an awful thing to say. We're still quite young. It's the first time someone so close to you, actually, there's no one closer to you, is there, um, is passing away. So I think for everyone, it's, it's good to be able to deal with it because you, you have to support your people. Nothing helps as much as good support and people who are good listeners. And most of the time, people who lose someone close, they don't want to talk about this. They just want to talk about their relationship with that person, how much they miss them. It's not a difficult conversation, but give them that space to be themselves. As you were saying, you could only think about that. How, what were you supposed to do then? Pretend you're another person? That's really mm. cruel. It did feel cruel. And I and what I love about this book is that it, it, it's... It's so because it's a picture book for you know four or five year olds. It's very straightforward, and I think that's the that's the message of the book is you just need to be straightforward. You don't need to dress death up in any way. Yes, absolutely. Because children, for them, everything's a first experience, right? So they just go along with it. Okay, now it's time for our weekly roundup. What have you got? Yes, I will start. I will start here in Bristol where one of the good news is that a team of scientists led by the University of Bristol has identified one of the potential causes of what makes this coronavirus highly infectious. So this is why the virus is able to bind to a specific protein found at the surface of human cells. So this groundbreaking study was published in the scientific review Nature, which is one of the greatest in the world. And it described the virus's acute ability to infect human cells. It shows that it can be reduced by what we call inhibitors, and they block that interaction between the virus and our cells, indicating a potential treatment for the virus, which I think is the most interesting part of that research, right? So if you want to know more, I'm not a scientist, I'm not going to try to detail, uh, go and check the details on... Um, nature or um, on the website of the University of uh, Bristol. Uh, thanks to this research group, things have made a lot of progress and I just wanted to name uh, Professor Peter Cullen, Associate Professor and Virologist Dr. Yohei Yamochi and Dr. Boris Simonetti. Big up to them. There's also a video on YouTube from these people if you, if you search for uh, University of Bristol Faculty of Science, of Life Sciences actually, you can um, have an explainer there with great images. Fantastic. Staying in Bristol, an English secondary school teacher has started a crowdfunding campaign to raise money to buy laptops for students. He's called Jason Gilman and he says that many students are getting left behind, particularly when they have to self-isolate as they don't all have laptops at home. And he says in his school, which is Fairfield, it's particularly noticeable that some students are getting left behind and he thinks that this is completely unacceptable in 2020. So to access the crowdfunder, you need to go to the site GoFundMe and search for digital poverty. And we are planning to cover this in a future podcast, Melissa. Yes, it's a very interesting topic. Actually, I'm quite shocked that there are no government measures to help families or even workers. Like I've, I've been asked to use my laptop for over a year now and it's difficult. It's actually full and I don't know where to put all these things. But um, so I can only sympathize with younger people from bigger family. How are they supposed to, to get on when everything's moving online? So hopefully... 
they'll, it's really they'll come tricky, up with a bigger it? solution than one. It's great. We have a GoFundMe, but we should have a national plan. Well, I think Jason will move on to that. Great. Well done, Jason. All right. Now, we've just talked about digital poverty in Bristol and obviously all over the UK in terms of not having the, the enough laptops and digital devices for students to use. But you've got a story which is a bit more global. Yes, actually, many statistics globally shows that thanks to new maps, meaning, you know, an accumulation of data and numbers and research, those maps show how the digital divides are actually shrinking all over the world. So it's good that we have people like the, the one you mentioned to improve that, but and let's have confidence it is possible. Some parts of the world obviously are still digitally disconnected, uh, but in wealthy countries like ours, more than 85% of the population has now access to the internet, whereas the average for developing countries is 43%. So the growth in connectivity over the past generation has been remarkable and obviously transformative. An estimated 75 billion devices will be linked to every person, place and company by 2025, according to this research. Getting connected is now an essential driver of, of economic growth, but also, you know, well-being and being in touch with uh, knowledge and etc. people. And these sort of maps also show that in the past 50 years, the average duration of schooling has doubled. And most parts of the world are now closing in gender parity in primary school as well. So these gains have powered um, development, obviously, and helped democracies. And more maps also show that life expectancy and children's health are improving worldwide. So I thought, you know, with all this terrible, dreadful pieces of news that we hear every day, like a very long chapel of, you know, an ever-ending wall thrown at you of despair... This, this, all these statistics are actually proving that we live in the best time for mankind. So how uplifting is that? It's really uplifting. And I've got another uplifting story for you. It's been a week of finding things, Melissa. As you probably read, scientists found molecular water on the moon. I'm not sure what the difference is between that and ordinary water, but uh, even still, it's very exciting news. And in Australia this week, an enormous coral reef has been found at the northern tip of Australia's Great Barrier Reef, apparently the first discovery of its kind in 120 years. And it's a huge one. It's 500 metres high. So that makes it taller than New York's Empire State Building and taller than the Petronas Twin Towers in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. So they found it because they were mapping the seafloor in the area um, and a team aboard a research vessel owned by the Schmidt Ocean Institute, which is a non-profit group based in California, were using an underwater robot to explore the reef and make a 3D map. Known as Sub-Bastion, I like that, don't you? Sub-Bastion, Sebastian. The robot live-streamed video of the discovery and posted it to YouTube so we can all have a look. And this is particularly good news since in recent years, the Great Barrier Reef has been vastly damaged by warmer seas, which have killed off coral, dispersed other marine life and sped up the growth of algae and other contaminants. And it's, it, it's you can see maps of it and it's sort of slightly detached from the Great Barrier Reef, which is why it hasn't been found before. So it's actually good news that was always there, but finally we were aware of it. So it's bring everybody yeah. relief. 
500 metres high. I mean, I always think of coral reefs as being near the surface because they need light, don't they, to get all those beautiful colours. So I don't yes, understand what's going on 500 metres where it must be completely dark. Yeah, I think it's just because we see those representation, you know, those beautiful photographs. So we, we don't know the whole of the life of uh, coral reefs. It's just our limited knowledge of them. <laughs> but you're right, I had the same vision, obviously, totally. To finish off, what do we have, Pommy? So for this week's Dash of the Unexpected, we have another track from the wonderful Funnel Music, uh, who, who've given us permission to play any and all of their artists. And this one goes, I thought, particularly well with the theme of grief and death. It's called Ain't Over Yet, and it's by the band Some Bodies. for the quarantini this week we'll be back next time with a new cocktail of ideas music and positive news for you all in the meantime we'd really love to hear from you so you can get hold of us by emailing us for instance at the quarantini podcast at gmail.com we're also on facebook twitter and instagram this episode was hosted by me melissa shaman and was hosted and produced by me pomi Harmer. thanks for listening and stay safe